Hello and welcome to the latest installment of this little podcast of mine. I hope that this finds you well wherever you're at. I'm hoping to add more episodes to this thing more frequently than I have been up to this point. And uh, I'll continue to base what I talk about here on uh, my photography as, as well as some of the, I don't know, for want of a better term, uh, background thought uh, to them and uh, the process that um, is involved in uh, taking those photos and uh, producing them. Happy March. I don't know what the beginning of the month is like where you're at here in southwest Finland. It is snowy. After a February in which there was very little snow, uh, we've now got Oh, not a huge amount of snow, maybe a centimeter on the ground. Not a whole lot, but um, certainly um, there is um, a covering of snow as I look out the window. But it's predicted to warm up above freezing, I think, for uh, the rest of today and for this week as well. I was thinking about uh, some of the, if you will, uh, prompts to my own thought in this podcast that um, I wanted to share with you so you have maybe um, some idea or a slightly better idea of uh, where I'm coming from and why I talk about the things I talk about. And um, a lot of it, if not most of it, has to do with my teaching. I've taught a lot of different things over the past nearly 25 years now. Uh, everything from history of Christian theology, history of Christian spirituality, uh, Christian-Jewish relations, uh, history of Christian-Jewish relations, um, history of um, Christian liturgy, or if you will, Christian ritual, um, the theologies that have been constructed around those rituals through time. many different subjects, church history as well. Most recently, I've been teaching in an adjunct role in a couple of different places, both of which are very different in their orientation. And the first is the Eastern Orthodox Theological Seminary in New York City, St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary, where I have taught for the past five years now, courses on uh, various aspects of uh, Orthodox Christian liturgical life, ritual life, if you will, and um, its practice and the uh, theologies behind that practice. But in addition to that, I've also taught for the past five years as an adjunct at the University of the Arts Helsinki, which is a conglomerate of three different um, institutions of um, arts higher education. The Academy of Fine Arts, the Sibelius Academy for Music, and the uh, Theater Academy. And there, I've taught courses in the broad area of modern spirituality and art. 
and I'm using that term um, rather um, narrowly to define the phenomenon as um, scholars have come to define it um, in the literature today. But various intersections between art and art making and the various dimensions of, of what is contemporary spirituality, particularly in the period of that we live in now, that is the, the period of late modernity, if you will, or as um, it has also been called, a liquid modernity, late capitalism, whatever you want to call it, it's an era as... We all know, I think, in which we all live according to our daily lives, according to the explanatory narrative of science and the um, instrumental use of technology that um, in one way or another derives from that science. And that's how we typically live our everyday lives, uh, governed by assumptions about the world and how it works, how we explain it, that have been um, fashioned through scientific um, experimentation and research, right? At the same time, of course, um, what that has meant is that, and uh, the uh, German sociologist Max Weber uh, noted this um, in his work, particularly in a series of lectures in 1917, 1918, I'd have to look up the exact date now, um, where he talks about the process of the disenchantment of the world. You may be familiar with this term. It's basically the idea, if I understand it correctly, that the rise of, uh, of scientific discourse, scientific explanation of the world, um, from the time of the Enlightenment on, and then through modernity into, and then of course, as later scholars would say, into um, late modernity, because of Weber himself died of the Spanish flu in, uh, I want to say 1918, maybe 1919, but in any case, that, um, that as science progresses and the explanatory power of science increases, that it gradually will push out of the public sphere um, those kinds of, of meta-narratives, those explanations of the world uh, provided by uh, traditional religious systems. And his view was that that process would be um, virtually complete. That, that is, there would be no place any longer in the public sphere for explanations of the world that refer to something transcendent or based on some kind of transcendent authority. But um, as we all know, that hasn't happened, right? And even though um, the role of organized religion has um, really diminished in public life in many places, and the, the public role of organized religions has, has moved, has become more and more marginalized in many societies. I mean, Finland is a great example of this, I think. It's less visible in the United States, although I suggest, I think that it's actually happening there as well. But in spite of that, interest in the transcendent hasn't disappeared. Interest in what we can call um, things religious hasn't disappeared at all, right? 
even as uh, people may be less inclined to uh, to go to church or temple or whatever, they may very well uh, be inclined to fashion for themselves a set of practices and beliefs drawn from a variety of sources and experiences that um, that better meets um, their own uh, spiritual needs, if I can put it that way, than what organized religious communities offer. One example of this, and this um, has come up for me recently because uh, I gave a couple of lectures last month, February of 2020, in a course at the Academy of Fine Arts on ritual and sound. It was organized by um, Ava Grayson, who is a a Canadian-born faculty member in the uh, the sound arts department um, at the University of the Arts. And uh, what she had asked me to do in two lectures was first to talk about ritual in general as kind of a phenomenon, a human phenomenon, and um, the the activity of uh, making rituals in uh, late modernity. And then as a kind of a um, manifestation of that broader phenomenon of um, disenchantment. And then, um, to talk more specifically in the second lecture about, um, about Christian rituals and sound, which I did um, largely in terms of, of what uh, seems to have been going on in uh, Syrian churches in late antiquity, that is the 4th and 5th century with uh, choirs um, made up of women who sang um, hymns composed by um, the great uh, hymnographer and theologian Ephraim the Syrian, whom I mentioned in the first lecture, as well as um, those who followed him, or at least some. But in any case, um, so even though you know people may not go to church um, and participate in Christian rituals, let's say, they still feel the need for um, ritual to help them negotiate um, life cycle events, you know, like uh, births, um, marriage, uh, death, um, transitions of one kind or another, and also for um, celebrating, uh, you know, various events that happen in life that are are deemed as worth celebrating, or uh, to highlight the the sacredness of um, everyday life through. Uh, through practicing uh, rituals at various points during the day. I mean, there are all kinds of things you can talk about, and it's a, it's a huge topic with, um, with a complex dynamic, to be sure. And, um, you know, there are tensions within that, that phenomenon of, um, of ritualizing today uh, that have to do with, you know, what we mean by the aims of that ritual. Is it um, personal transformation? Is it social transformation? Um, is it interpretation of the world around us? What's going on? And um, how do the rituals that people create today relate to um, kind of the traditional ritual materials that exist um, in uh, traditional religious communities? So it's a, it's a fascinating issue. And um, my point in those lectures was simply to say, you know, we recognize that this is happening. And, um, you know, I want to raise that uh, that question of the aims of, of such 
ritualizing activity. Because, as you may have guessed from the first lecture, I have an interest in, in the ethical dimensions of ritual activity, of, of you know, making rituals, of enacting rituals. So, in any case, that's, that's been one stimulus for my thought. The others are a lecture that I'm going to be giving this week at the University of the Arts in a seminar in the sculpture department. And I'm supposed to talk about um, the question of cosmic energy in relation to the broader topic of the seminar. And um, basically what I'm going to talk about is, is some ways in which uh, that idea has been uh, treated in, for want of a better term, uh, Occult movements in the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, theosophy, for example, and uh, how you know ideas about cosmic energy and the harnessing of um, control over manipulation of um, attunement with such energies um, has influenced the making of art in the 20th century. Now, all of this then, of course, um, plays into the last interest and uh, activity of mine right now, which is uh, teaching a course in liturgical theology at um, at St. Vladimir's. And again, the question of, of uh, liturgical activity, or if you will, ritual activity, in the late modern world is uh, paramount there. How do we understand what we're doing when uh, we seek to embrace a tradition, an ancient tradition, a deep tradition, in a late modern world? How does one make meaning out of that act? And of course, you know, one can ask that question of, of anyone who seeks to, uh, to embrace, to live according to a specific, um, well-delineated um, spiritual tradition, right? How do we negotiate that as late modern people? Okay, so in any case, those are some of the things that, that have been on my mind in the past few weeks uh, as I've been pondering what to talk about next in this podcast. All of this is to say that, um, for me, all of this in one way or another comes back to some of what I've been doing more of lately, if you follow my, uh, my Instagram feed, you'll, you'll have seen this. I've uh, been doing more and more with uh, double exposure and multiple exposure photographs and, um, you know, obviously um, superimposing uh, one photograph on another, one scene upon another, one layer upon another, one, um, one perspective upon another. And, uh, as I've thought about what I've, I've been doing with that, and first of all, it was simply delightful to be able to see, you know, what was possible when one does that. That may sound naive. I just, um, I knew about double exposure photography, but I just had never really worked with it. And then on the other hand, um, to think more broadly about what, um, what the meaning, if anything, of what I was producing was. If you know me, you will know that I am 
um, skeptical of grand overarching theories and neat explanations for anything. And so I'm not going to give you anything like that for any of these photographs, except to say that it seems to me that in discovering uh, that technique, what I have been doing as well is uh, discovering a new way itself of approaching the world around me, of which I take photographs, namely, that... um, The natural settings of my photographs to date aren't simply objects, as they were, as it were, that I kind of capture, although that's obviously one legitimate way to talk about photography, right? Capturing an image. But somehow, and I'm just going to leave it at this, somehow taking those photographs and then arranging them in different ways in um, multiple exposures or uh, double exposures um, is a way of um, opening the world up and seeing in it more than simply a a static scene, but rather more as, uh, as a, maybe this will sound uh, um, extravagant, but uh, a treasure chest of images, of the raw materials out of which it just might be possible to come to, to construct, to arrive at a view of the world and its potential, which allows me and whoever looks at my photographs to see the world in a way that might allow them as well to take what the world offers and To see what happens when we put those ingredients together in interesting ways. I know I sound cryptic here. I don't mean to. It's simply uh, perhaps a a lack of an adequate language to uh, describe what I'm talking about. But um, I think the result can be, doesn't necessarily have to be, but I think it can be, something that is more than simply imaginary in the limited sense of the term that uh, of the term as it means doesn't correspond to quote unquote reality instead uh, perhaps the end result of such um, such an approach to what the world offers and how we um, how we construct it in in our photography It has to do with uh, something else about the world that uh, has to do with the imagination and 
what lies in, through, and beyond the world at a deeper level. And I want to talk about that more later, not here, because um, it would be worth an entire uh, separate podcast, and so I, I hope to do that. And I'm not saying at the same time that um, things as they are, so to speak, aren't um, enough in and of themselves. That uh, we can't, that, in other words, that when we approach um, nature, we see it, not as an object, of course, but as, as, again, this will sound maybe like over-optimistic um, florid language, but as a mystery in which to delight, which can't be captured or reduced to a single image, but through, but by means of image, we can enter into in a deeper way. I know this is nothing particularly new, but, uh, but certainly, and I've known this in the past, but certain all of these things in the past, but they have kind of come together for me in a new way in uh, the past few weeks. Okay, folks, um, I'm a little over 20 minutes here. I think I'll stop here for now. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and I wish you all good things for this upcoming month of March. Take care. Bye.